0: Good to see you this morning. My name's Peter. I'm one of the uh, pastors out here. It's good to have you. Uh, In case you don't know, uh, if you're uh, in our Facebook group or uh, on our mailing list, you would know this already, but we're going to change our name. Uh, From the beginning of uh, February next year, we're going to be Restoration Church, so we're pretty pumped about that um, and uh, looking forward to uh, what the Lord has for us. Well, here we are at the end of probably the longest recorded conversation Jesus has with anyone. Um, And it's worth us stopping for a moment and just having a bit of a think about something that's been happening the whole way along. In fact, it's been what the whole story has been about. And uh, for many of you, you just go, oh, that's not really any great surprise. Uh, But sometimes you can drill down into something and you can miss the forest for the trees. Here's what's been going on, Uh, restoration. That's what's been going on uh, with this Samaritan woman at the well talking to Jesus. Uh, what's restoration? Well, restoration is the reversal of something. It's to take something back to a previous state, return something to its previous owner, or return it to a previous place. Um, it has similarities to the ideas, the biblical ideas of salvation and, and redeem or redemption where there's a sense of being saved from sin or evil. Um, and here's the bottom line, folks. We, we like stories of restoration. We absolutely like them. I know you do. The evidence is everywhere. Um, I mean, The Block. Who's watching The Block at the moment? No, Okay. (laughs) Uh, It's a a bad example. But The Block is a story, aside from all the conflict and fighting that goes on, it's a story of restoration, isn't it? Restoration of buildings. You go to the movies, something bad happens. Something is under attack and someone good comes along who actually reverses that and restores things to their former state. Um, we love stories of restoration, I think in large part, because as, as David mentioned before, we, we need restoration too. We, we know that we are broken and messy bits. We know that we are ravaged by our own sin and by the sins of others. We know we're in a decrepit state compared to what God originally intended and made, no one actually argues about this. Uh, I don't know whether you've noticed, but out in society, no one argues that humanity's perfect in in their intended state. I mean, you only need to go uh, and look at the ballooning, and this is not a criticism in any way, but the ballooning mental health industry. Uh, Counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, rehab centres and so on. You know, if that's not enough, does everyone remember this show? (laughs) It was on a few years ago, this time next year. This show was all about stories of restoration. People came in there and they had all these sorts of problems. And what would they do? There'd be some kind of uh, program that they would commit to, some kind of area where they'd exercise their discipline. And in 12 months' time, I'm going to be different. The story we've been working through in John chapter 4 has an amazing plot line. It's a plot line that we all love. I can imagine someone, and I have a fertile imagination, but I can imagine someone talking about it at a barbecue, like the real life story. And it goes something like this. You know, it's amazing, right? Like Jesus, he's this Jew, and, and one day he's, uh, he needs to get to Galilee. So he, he goes through Samaria, he pulls up, he's tired, He's, uh, he's thirsty, he pulls up at this, well, this, this Samaritan here. she's a wreck, she's an absolute wreck. Married five times. Let me tell you a few of the things that the locals used to say about her. And you can imagine this story going on and on. Uh, today we're going to see the fruit of the conversation that this woman has with Jesus. And Jesus is going to pull the curtain back a little bit for us and let us see what's going on backstage. So if you've got a Bible there with you, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 4. We're going to start at... Um, Verse 27, so uh, if you've got a phone or an app or actual Bible, um, it's like, what is is that? Actual Bible. John chapter 4, starting at verse 27. Jesus is just, uh, the verses before this has just disclosed that he is the Messiah, the saviour of the world. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marvelled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with it? Now, just as a side note, if you knew uh, and you haven't been here the last couple of times I've preached, uh, there was a bit, it was a bit of a deal back in the day uh, for a man, a, a Jewish man, to be talking with a Samaritan woman. They had a saying, the rabbis had a saying, and this is, I quote, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, or on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. That was a rabbinic saying. Uh, so you can understand why the, the, um, the disciples kind of didn't know what to do at this point in time. But let's kick on. Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people... Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. They went in to get maccas and they brought it back and obviously had some food for him. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples said to one another, what a wise saying. <laughs> That's an incredibly deep saying. No, they said, um, um, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is another classic dislocation where Jesus is talking about something far deeper than what they see. Um, do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes a the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you've entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And Many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves. and We know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. is the first thing I want to tackle this morning with us, the catalyst of restoration. Have a look at verse 29 uh, to 30 uh, there. Um, The woman leaves her jar at the well. She goes into the town and she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, obviously the conversation I think would have been much more extensive than what John records, but uh, I want you to see something really simple here. And it's something that you already know. Uh, this woman is a catalyst for the restoration of other people in her town. What's a catalyst? A catalyst is an agent that provokes or speeds significant change or action without being affected itself. It gets things going. The woman had experienced a powerful change in herself from talking to Jesus. You know, we can assume that there's more conversation that John actually records It changed her so profoundly. She goes into the town, into the village, and she tells other people about Jesus. Now, it's very simple. Very simple what happens. One of the things you can actually observe in the church is the following. Uh, The longer people are in the church, the less people they interact with who don't know Jesus, the less they're connected to the outside world, and the less able they are to reach people who don't know Jesus. Have you noticed that? that is, that's, a, that's a genuine, real dynamic. And it's actually a problem. It's a problem for the church. It's a problem for all sorts of reasons. It's actually uh, one of the reasons why churches do run evangelistic courses. And I don't mean evangelistic courses for people that don't know Jesus, but training courses to teach, teach Christians how to talk to non-Christians about Jesus. And who knows, at some point in time, we might run a, uh, a training course at some point in time. But let me say this to you. I actually think that in large part, when a church gets to a point where it needs to run a training course about how people can talk to their non-Christian friends and workmates about Jesus, we've probably failed at that point. All right, We probably failed. Why? Because the most powerful witnesses tend to be those who know the least, but who have experienced the powerful restorative work of God most profoundly. This woman doesn't know anything. <laughs> she hasn't done an evangelistic training course to go and work out how to tell her friends and the people that she knows in the village about Jesus. She's been transformed by Jesus and she turns up and she tells them. What Jesus knew. She tells him about her interaction with Jesus. You know, I, I think she's, she's reveling. She's reveling in Jesus' work and in, and in the encounter that she had with Jesus. Here's a statement I often share in um, restoration groups. Hurt people hurt people. Most of us have heard that one before and it's generally true. But who knows the next two are true as well. Loved people, love people. Restored people, restore people. Now I don't want you to get snagged by the last one. I mean the last one in a catalyst sense. That's what I mean. Um, you know, the nature of Jesus' restorative work is not limited to becoming a Christian, as this woman has. It goes beyond it. You can talk about how Jesus is at work in your life right now. And so I'd ask you this question. If, if a very simple way of telling people about Jesus is telling people about what he's done in your life, what would you tell them? Do you tell them? What's Jesus doing? Could, could you go to work tomorrow and say, you know, I was, I remember saying this to, uh, to someone a little while ago. It's like, Jesus really helped me with being anxious about a certain thing. And he taught me how to trust him. You could just say that. I mean, you look at what the woman says, it's not that great in a sense. Come out and see this guy that knew all this stuff about me. That was it. Where are you being restored? And I'll tell you something. You can actually be in the church for a really long time you just get in seasons where nothing's happening, right? Nothing's happening. And you just, like if someone came up to you and said, how are you different now than what you were 12 months ago, you wouldn't have an answer for them. And I want to say to you, and I say this lovingly, you need to have an answer to that. <laughs> you need to have an answer to that. Because if you're not different now than what you were 12 months ago, there's something wrong. There's something seriously wrong. And sometimes it can be difficult to put it into words. And sometimes it's easier for people around us to see how we've been changing. But one of the things we believe at the core of who we are at the project here is that we just need to be growing all the time and Jesus is bringing his transformation, his restoration ongoingly. And so we, we ought to have stories about that. I mean, we don't have time today, but if we had time today, I'd say, turn to the person next to you. And tell them something that Jesus has restored and changed in you in the last 12 months. And you should just have the gun loaded on that, right? And I'm not saying that to put you under pressure or make you feel guilty. But if there hasn't been anything in the last 12 months, maybe, maybe one explanation for that is that there's been good things going on and other people can see it better than you can see it. And so maybe it would even be an opportunity to ask someone close to you, how have, how have things changed for me? But if things haven't changed and you've just plateaued, it's time to lean in. It's time to lean in. And then, once you've got an answer for that, you can start telling people who don't know Jesus. Sonny Bill Williams, um, he had a uh, biography uh, come out in the last few weeks. Has anyone noticed it? No, you haven't? Look at that. I'm, I'm just striking out three strikes and I sit down. Yeah, it's going to work today. <laughs> and I've read a bunch of stuff about uh, Sonny Bill's uh, biography that's come out. Uh, if you don't know who Sonny Bill Williams is, he's a very famous uh, NRL player and actually rugby player. He's played uh, for the All Blacks and also played in Australia for um, some NRL teams. Anyway, he, do you know what he's doing at the moment? He's going around spruiking about how he used to be a slave to his desires and Allah... Helped him to get him under control. He's out spruking a story of restoration. And I, I want to say to you, we've got a better one. Because <laughs> if you read Sonny Bill's stuff, it sounds like there's a lot of hard work in the restoration that is going on there. And there can be hard work in the way that restoration happens for us as we follow Jesus, but that's not the center of where the restoration actually comes from. You know, and I I feel challenged. I'll just go, man, we, we, and me, all of us, we have a better story than Sonny Bill. Is anyone with me? We have a way better story. But you better believe it. At the core of who you are, you better believe it and you better see some of it. And if you're not seeing it at the moment, you need to get a bit more of a piece of it. Get in a community group. Get in some close relationships with people. Get people to pray for you. Join a restore group when they run next year. That's the new name of it. There you go. Just snuck an announcement in. And here's the bottom line. The woman goes off to the village. And she doesn't feel, I don't think, any responsibility to bring about change in anyone in the village. Because it's above her pay grade. She was a really, really compelling witness. But all she went in, I mean, imagine... I imagine her going in and I reckon, you know, there's some people think, oh, that's the five-time divorced woman. You know, and she's in that facto relationship. I'm not going to listen to her. But she's come in and she is amped up and she bears witness. She doesn't have to worry about bringing change in people. She just has to bear testimony. And that is easy, right? You don't have to bring about change. It's, it's way above your pay grade. Let me take that off your shoulders. Just bear witness. When Jesus does something in your life, you can do this with Christians, people who know Jesus, and with people who don't know Jesus, just bear witness to what Jesus has done in your life. Number two, this morning, is the second thing we're going to tackle, the work, restoration. It's the longest section, so we're not going to read it again at this point, but do it in pieces as we go, because there's two things that Jesus is actually saying here. Uh, one part of it is the essence of what he's doing, and the other is the essence is how the essence of what he is doing is being expressed. So we'll just tackle the essence of what Jesus do, is doing in the first place, and it's all wrapped up in a discussion about food. So if you're a teenage boy, so like I knew there was a reason for coming to church today, because food is just so good. Here are the things Jesus says. Have a look at verse 31 to 34. The disciples say, eat, he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. The disciples went, where'd you get it from? So we went to Maccas, where did he go? I thought he just stayed here. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's Jesus talking about? Well, you know what? He's talking about food that is much, something that is much more significant than physical food. You know, if you go back earlier in John chapter 4, you see a similar thing going on between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. She's talking about physical water. He's talking about him being the living water. Now, granted, Jesus would have been hungry and thirsty physically, but what he's actually doing here is he's pointing to a deeper satisfaction. Now, let me just say something we've said lots of times at the project, but you just need to understand it's quite a distinct view and understanding of the person in our society we are embodied souls we are physical and we are also non-physical our culture over and over wants to teach you that we're just physical beings and that there isn't a part of us that is non-physical but i think when people push that They just kind of crash into it all the time because there's parts about us that just don't work. You see, no one, when they're sinned against, thinks it is merely chemicals and DNA as Richard Dawkins wants to tell you. It feels so much different to that. No one kind of sits there and goes, oh, that person punched me in the nose because a bunch of DNA and chemicals stirred up and hormones got going. And that's all it is. I'm not going to be offended by that. You know, no one when you just get backstabbed by someone else goes, oh, it's just chemicals and physicality and I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. There's way more to us than that. Our culture may want to boil it down to the physical, but at the end of the day, we're much, much more. And I want to say to you this morning, and you've got to hear this, and this is distinct too. The most significant central part of what it means to be human is not your physicality. You hear that? It's just not. It feels like it because then you have a bad sleep. Everything goes into chaos sometimes. Or maybe when you're hungry. I mean, we talk about being hungry, right? The material, the physical is important, but it's not actually most of what makes us who we are. The most of what makes us who we are is our soul. It's, as the Bible talks about, it's our heart. It's our non-physical heart. And this is true of Jesus also. While Jesus is fully God and fully human, what we actually see here is just Jesus saying the most significant part about what it means for him to be him is not the physical, it's the spiritual. And so he tells him he has sustenance which I know nothing about. What's Jesus saying? He's saying... There is something that is more satisfying for him when he's hungry and thirsty than Macca's, than a good buffet, than the best home-cooked meal that you can muster. That's what he's saying. What is it? What's doing what God the Father says? It's better than that. And it's, it seems to be an allusion, I think it's quite a clear allusion to what we actually find from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is going to preach in his best of sermon to the Israelites before they go into the promised land. Listen to what he says. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone. But, and everyone read it together, man lives by every worth that comes from the mouth of God. Change the word there, worth. Every word. You see that? Are you comfortable with that? I'm not comfortable with that. a physical level do you know what that says there is that God says God led his people so that they would hunger physically to learn that the thing that they need the most is what God says to them would you like that this is this is next level right and I'd ask you this question has God ever led you to a place of hunger so that you would learn that what you need most, what sustains you, is what he says and who he is. Has he ever done that? So you can do it to yourself through fasting. What do you do with fasting? Well, typically you forego food in order to focus on the deeper satisfaction and close of closeness with God. Have you ever fasted? And here. Here's a sideline comment. If you haven't, you should. Right? And uh, one of the best books on it, I think, is John Piper's book, uh, A Hunger for God. Uh, it's all about fasting. I, I bought it because I, I love John Piper. This is years ago. And I uh, I stuck it on my shelf because I knew if I read it, I was going to have to fast, and it was there for years. <laughs> but then I did. And it was good. Let me change the question a little bit. Um, have you ever had times in your life where God has led you into the wilderness and you don't have what you think you need for life, but it presses you into God? It forces you into trusting and drawing from Him. Have you had that? If, if you look at the Old Testament, um, one of the patterns that you actually see God's people and I don't think it's so much different in the New Testament is uh, you meet with God in the wilderness where there's hunger and what did they learn well they learned that what they really needed to survive was God's word he's speaking to them and a life which is built upon us so maybe I could rephrase it for you personally today Has God led you to a place where there's hunger Maybe it's physical hunger. Maybe it's it's a hunger in some area of your life where you just go, I don't have what I need to survive. Because the chances are, he's taking you there on purpose. Right? Because he wants you to learn a man, woman does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, you can kick against it. If you're in a place of hunger now and God's led you there, you can kick against it. But my, um, my advice to you is just don't. Learn what he wants you to learn and press into him and draw close to him and get what he wants to give you without kicking against it. Second half of what uh, Jesus uh, is up to in this section out of John is he's talking about harvesting. Uh, You look at verse uh, 35 to 38, and Jesus is all about harvesting. And, um, And so what is the particular work which Jesus is engaged in, which he says is food? What is the will of God? Well, it's harvesting. What kind of harvesting? It's like, is he out there harvesting wheat or something? No, he's harvesting people. He's harvesting people. There's a harvesting of souls, people ready to come to him. And this is the work of Jesus which sustains and satisfies him more than physical food. Now, that is good news, isn't it? Just stop and think for a moment. Have you ever had that moment where you you felt like you got into the kingdom and you got saved by some kind of clause about 120 footnotes in? Just snuck in, and and God's just—it's like, oh, jeez, I should have—I should have dealt with that, you know. Pete just snuck in, you know. I didn't really intend for him to be here. I didn't really intend for him to be saved, but he just kind of got in. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like God's a little bit reluctant? Jesus goes to the cross with a grimace, kind of emoji on his face. Shouldn't say that, should I? This is like, oh, I am going to save these sinners. Well, he doesn't feel like that. He doesn't feel like that. Uh, Jesus loves to save people. He loves it. It's like food for him. He loves to save them. This is the work which sustains and satisfies him more than physical food. And what's Jesus saying in this section out of? 35 to 38 is you just, just encourage you to have a little look at it there. Well, you know what he's saying. One of the things he's saying really clearly, I think, is that there's no time to waste. Something we need to rush. We need to make haste. What he's saying is there are people that are ready to come to Jesus. You believe that? Do you believe that at work? Do you believe that when you walk into the, uh, the service station to pay for your fuel? Do you believe that about your friends, about your family, that that God has got people ready to come to him? There are people around you that are ready to come to Jesus and we just need to get on with it. And I wonder, do you think about it this way? Or do you feel a bit reluctant about some of that stuff? You know, you look at Jesus' saying there... um, the sower and reaper rejoicing together. You know what that, um, you know what that's all about. Jesus kind of said normally the process is you sow and then you have to wait a bunch of time and then you reap a harvest. But he's saying his work is going to mean that the sower and the reaper are going to re- rejoice together. What does he mean? Well, they're going to happen side by side sometimes. Let me just have a look. Let's have a, a quick look at. It's sewing. You know, I, I remember someone talking about a research study years ago that actually quantified how many interactions, solid interactions non-Christians needed to have with a Christian before they actually seriously considered the faith. And it, it, by memory, it's about 15, right? Um, I haven't been able to find it. I've, d- I've done searches for it. Uh, th- this is a saying that um, Greg Kokel... I love Greg Kochel. You can look his stuff up. He's really helpful. But this is the same Greg Cochle use, uses. He, he says, just put a stone in the shoe. And it's one that I've followed for years and years, decades even. Because I, as a, as a younger guy, felt the pressure. It's like, oh, I've got to have this conversation. I've got to close the deal. You know, it's like you've, you've got to sell the whole thing about Jesus. And then at the end of it, someone's got to bow down on their knees. And you come to church and every now and then someone would stand up and they'd talk about that kind of thing you feel guilty because you go oh that's never happened to me uh, and so there was this internal pressure um, on that but the reality is that closing the deal is not our job it's just not our job at all uh, it's Jesus's job and our job is to keep bearing witness and so as Greg Kokel puts it uh, I most of the time just think well I'm just gonna stick a stone in their shoe uh, what does Kokel mean by that well here's what he says I want to put a stone in his shoe. All I want to do is give him or her something worth thinking about. I want him or her to hobble away on a nugget of truth that annoys him in a good way, something he can't simply ignore because it continues to poke at him. That's good, right? That's sowing. It's just, just stick a little bit in there. Harvesting, well, we know what that is, right? Harvesting is people coming to faith. And as Jesus says here... If you get to harvest, it's because others have probably done the sowing before you. All right? That's how it works. Now, verse 38, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying this to the disciples. He goes, we're in Samaria and there's a harvest coming and you're getting to reap something for which you didn't sow. Well, who are the others who have labored? Well, they're not. Entirely sure, commentators are not entirely sure who this is, but I reckon, and most commentators say this too, I reckon it's John the Baptist. Back in John 3 verse 23, when John was writing about John the Baptist, uh, he writes this, John was also baptising at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptised. Now, people don't know exactly where that place is, but the two options, the two options, guess where they are? In Samaria. Okay, so John the Baptist has already been into Samaria. And Jesus is flagging that there's a whole bunch of harvesting that's going to happen. It's because someone else has sown before you. And Jesus is saying there's going to be so much harvesting that it's going to appear that the harvesting and the sowing are being done together at the same time. And that's the effect that Jesus has. Like The interval actually disappears between them. I told this story a little while ago but um I'll tell it again because uh it's it an amazing story I was, I was teaching this year eight bible class and at the end of the year eight bible class this um this Christian girl and, and her non-Christian friend came up after class at break time and and um the Christian girl said oh my friend here wants to know about becoming a Christian so I thought "Yeah, that's, we can do that I'd, I can throw a bit of apologetics at you you know I can just Let's hook into that. You know, here's the reasons why you can believe Jesus is who he says he is and started going through that. And then the Christian uh, student, very respectfully, just said, oh, Mr. Sondergeld, um, she's not asking about the reasons for it. She actually wants to become one. And so I just went, okay, all right, sure. Um, So we sat there and we prayed and she gave her life to Jesus. Amazing. Now, what did I get to do then? Harvest. Did I do any sewing at all? Maybe a little bit in my class. You know who I reckon did all the sewing? Her friend. Her friend probably did most of it. Amazing. You know, what's fascinating, I think, about this story of the woman of Samaria is she's already going and doing the sewing. <laughs> do you see that? Even as Jesus is talking to the disciples about this, what's she doing? Well, she's in town telling everyone about Jesus. So, 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 so. And ironically, Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to be eager about this at the very time that the woman is eager about it. (laughs) Do you see that? She's just off and running. Do you have a sense of that kind of eagerness? Is there a spring in your step? Or have you lost it? Number three, the center of restoration. I'm going to read this whole last section of this story. So verse 39 to 42, if you've got it in front of you. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. you see how this works? Um, The woman's witness left the people believing in Jesus, but the deal wasn't closed. And you can see that from verse 42, where the people say, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. Here's the bottom line, and this is to everyone who's not a Christian, a Christian, and in particular, this is for kids whose parents are Christian. And kids, I want you to hear me. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus because someone else says so. And I'm not putting down being a witness. Being a witness is really important. But it's it's actually got to go further, a step further than that. It's not just about, oh, mum and dad think it's a good thing, so I'm just going to hang in with it. It's not how Christianity works. And the reason why is attached to what the nature of Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship with Jesus. That's what it is. It isn't mainly about discipline. This time next year is about discipline and getting people around you to make the restoration happen. And I read the stuff about Sonny Bill, I get the sense that there's a lot of discipline and hard work that's going on in there, and him just submitting himself to stuff. Well, that's not the essence. Discipline is important, but it's not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. There's lots of those stories. There's There's no shortage of stories of restoration where effort and hard work is the center of it. In Christianity, <laughs> restoration is personal. It's always personal. So what we've got here, the woman, is she's like, I've just got to get him to Jesus. That's all I've got to do. I've just got to get him to Jesus. It's almost like a hallmark of, uh, I think, Mark chapter 2, you know, with the, the paralytic's friends. It's like they're just going, I just, we've just got to get him to Jesus. If we can get him to Jesus, he'll be okay. What happens when she gets them to Jesus? Well, they engage with Jesus personally. They engage with him personally. They ask him to stay with them. And he does for a couple of days. And in that couple of days as Jesus speaks and they get to interact with him, you see what actually happens is they take a, a step right in and now they're in, in, in. <laughs> They shift from taking her word for it to personal knowledge of Jesus and who he is. And here's what we learn, and it's something we learn throughout Scripture it's not possible for someone to be saved without a personal interaction with Jesus. You, you can't be saved. You know, the old saying uh, if you're a kid in a Christian family, God has no grandchildren. That's the old saying, right? God has no grandchildren, he only has. Children. So you, you have to work out what you're going to do with him. You have to personally engage with him. We've got four sons. Every one of my sons, they can't live off my faith or Andrew's faith. They have to connect with Jesus personally themselves. And isn't this what we heard from Dave earlier? You know, he, he was he was in the church and he was kind of going with the flow a bit. But all of a sudden, he has this personal Interaction with Jesus, and it's all different. Everything changes. And it's a, it's just a sublime statement that the Samaritans end with. Uh, incredible. Do you see that? We've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Now, you might go, yeah, yeah, cool, all over that. Like, know that Jesus is the saviour of the world, but... But just think for a moment, who's saying this? Well, just the Samaritans who didn't really have a clue. Who were the outcasts who thought they were the right ones, but the Jews didn't like them? The ones who weren't the real deal? They bear testimony to what we see in the early church, that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for everyone. This is phenomenal. In the day, this is absolutely phenomenal. And do you know what? There will not be many Jews in the house here. <laughs> and so this statement by the Samaritans is for us too, right? We're the beneficiaries of this. He's the saviour of the world. Now, don't miss what, um, what John's saying here. Um, you, you're familiar with saviour. But let me, let me tell you a, a few other people back in the day in John's day, that were called saviours. Um, the Jews actually called God the Father, saviour. There, there were Greek gods that were called saviours. Um, the emperor, the Caesar, was called the saviour. Um, the idea behind saviour back in the day was uh, someone saving people from serious disaster. So what the Samaritans are saying here is that the true saviour of the world is not Zeus. <laughs> the true saviour of the world is not Serapis. The true saviour of the world is not a Roman emperor. The true saviour of the world is not money in your bank account. The true saviour of the world is not a comfortable life. The true saviour of the world is not you. You're not it. The true Saviour of the world is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you believe it? Well, tell people about it. Straightforward. I wonder if you'd stand with me, I'll pray. Jesus, we... um, You... um, in human flesh, are the first evangel, the first person telling the good news. And um, man, people people flocked to you. There are people who opposed you, but people flocked to you. They, were, they got restored to you. They got restored themselves. These crazy dark stories. The dark story of a five times married woman in a de facto getting water in the middle of the day probably for because it's it's just difficult relationally people in town this is a hard story we don't even have that much information about a woman's background except for those small pieces of information we can imagine it's hard so far removed from what you intended you didn't intend her to be disconnected from you and a people group that um, sought to worship you but just didn't get it right. You didn't intend for her to be married five times. You didn't intend for her to be in a de facto relationship and the reality is God that we are all in places and there's parts of our lives that are the way that you didn't intend for us. You are a restorer. You're a saviour. You're a redeemer. And you come you make things right again. You rescue us. And we would say to you wholeheartedly with all of our hearts this morning that you indeed are the saviour of the world. You have been our saviour. And God, we, we still need rescuing. For those who love you, we didn't need, just need rescuing the first time when we gave our lives to you. We need rescuing every day. God, would you come? Come for us and help us. We end up in situations of our own doing and situations of other people's doing that are nasty and they're difficult. You don't like the wilderness, you don't like being hungry but it actually is there that you, uh, that you show up in really powerful ways. And so God, I pray for, for anyone this morning who uh, is, is standing here and just goes, yeah, I, I know, I know, I know what it is to be hungry. I, I'm starving in an area of my life right now. God, would you help them to look to you? God, I know that you Keep your eyes peeled for those in the wilderness and you supply what they need. You meet with them. So would you meet with them, God, even, even right now? But we do not want a church that's known for restoration because we all work really hard. We want to be a church of people who are restored You just love you so much we're so close to you we know that you love us and we turn to you regularly for rescue Amen